Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, uh, we went over the mountain yesterday. I was telling, um, we haven't been to West Virginia, so if you haven't been to a place, you haven't experienced something, you tend to stereotype it, don't you? I mean, I'm sure some of you have stereotyped Michigan people. Don't tell me you haven't, especially since that famous ball game some years ago with the Mountaineers and the Wolverines. So we won't get into that since we lost. Um, otherwise, I'd talk all about it uh, to you all. But it was, a, it was just a great day being with um, Justin and his family. And in fact, in, in our way of thinking, um, uh, this is no offense to the church community, but we came here primarily to be with Justin and his family because uh, having been a pastor for 35 years ourselves, we you know, often um, realize that even though you have people all around you, in many ways, um, you're either being led by them if it's your church board or you're leading them if they're your community. But where are your peers? Where are those that you can just be gut level, totally open with? And uh, we, just, we just love Justin. Fell in love with Carrie yesterday and, and the three girls. We also raised three girls, so just a lot of synergy. And um, to me, the cake was yesterday. Today is the icing that makes the cake even a little bit more sweet. So thank you for, for allowing us to be here. And um, I also want to say one more thing before I get into what I think I'm supposed to share with you this morning. I think it's very easy, um, you know, when a, when, a, when, a, when a guest comes in to speak, it's kind of easy to say, well, this is a traveling talking head, so to speak. Uh, please don't think that about me this morning. Um, I have the same hopes and fears and dreams and wounds and tears um, that you have. Um, last year, my wife went through a bout with a very rare cancer. We're coming up on another scan this week, so this morning we have that on our mind, of course. Anybody that survived cancer deals with the rhythm of scans, and so that's us. Um, some other things that I won't get into this morning, but just know this, that what I'm sharing with you today comes out of the deepest places in my being and in my heart. I'm not here to deliver you some kind of disconnected message from what's going on inside of me. I'm here to uh, share with you uh, what's, what's a part of my life. So I'd like you to, I don't know if you, know, if you got your phone, if you got your phone app, or if you just want to look at the screen, I'd like to talk to you this morning about some of Jesus' last words to his followers before he went to the cross. Um, and you'll see these on the screen here in just a moment. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. There we go. I see him. Um, and this is what he said. And, he, and you know this. The last words are usually the most important. There are libraries filled with the last words of famous people, but not so many books about, hey, this is what so-and-so said about halfway through his life or her life. So this is what uh, Jesus says. And again, you'll see these words on the screen. A new commandment I give to you, uh, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, he didn't say by putting on the greatest Easter pageant that Buchanan has ever seen. He didn't say uh, by, you know, hitting Virginia Beach and doing beach evangelism, which is fine if, if that's your thing. That isn't what Jesus said would win the world. He said uh, the word all. He said all will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another in the same way that I have loved you. 
Now, my sense is, as I uh, travel around the country, that the church in America is finally getting this a little bit. I think we're finally realizing that the non-believing world honestly doesn't care how slick we are. I mean, I'm not saying we should try to do things poorly, um, but I'm just saying their deepest hurts are the same as our deepest hurts, and the deepest hurts in life are relational. Um, the fact that we had a marriage that when we walked down the aisle, we said, uh, till death do us part, and it didn't work out. That's a deep wound. The fact that we have a child that we gave birth to, and by the age of 19, we were completely disconnected with them in, for some way, reason, because of circumstances or their personality type or mental illness or whatever. The fact that we had a close friend that said they would do the journey with us all the way home, and all of a sudden they don't call us anymore, and we feel like maybe we're just not good enough lovable enough to be called. The non-believing world feels the same pain that we feel in the very same ways, in the very same areas. I mean, if you've lost a job here today, I mean, that's a deep wound, but you can get another job. When you lose a relationship, there's something that breaks the deepest places in our hearts. And so the world is looking for some hope that their deepest wounds can somehow be healed. They're looking for someone, somewhere, to not just say words. The church has, we've said a lot of words over the years, haven't we? We've been, we've been so wordy. We know how to quote Bible. We know how to share uh, what's become known famously as the four spiritual laws. But my sense is, because we've got black churches over here and white churches over here and Pentecostal churches over here and Baptist churches over here, for heaven's sakes, there's 200 different kinds of Baptists. Yeah, that's right. How many different ways can you dunk someone to divide 200 times? Can you imagine that Jesus, just a few chapters after this, in, very, in the very same talk that night before he went to the, to the cross, he was on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, actually, when he paused and gave this discourse, pieces of this discourse. He said, if, if you will love as I have loved you, and if you will stay together as a community of believers... The world will not only know that you're my disciples, but he says in that passage in John 17, the world will know that God sent me, that I am literally the Messiah. And you know how many denominations we have today? 40,000 denominations. And yet we are so frustrated that the world won't come to Christ. We're so frustrated that our friends won't hear our words. Jesus said, it's really not about words. It's about displaying the healing power of the love of Christ that compels someone to believe that there's hope for their deepest wounds, their deep relational wounds. Before we say a word, they look at us and they say, maybe there's hope for the deep relational wounds in my life. One time an author that I love to read, a guy named Philip Yancey. Any of you read Philip Yancey, anything by Philip Yancey? I mean, he just, I don't, yeah, he hasn't written anything lately, at least that I know of, but what's so amazing about Grace, uh, just, he's just a profound author. He had this interview with this, um, it was a Hindu scholar, and the Hindu scholar said, we can reproduce in Hinduism any miracle that Christianity can come up with except one. And then he said to Philip, do you know which miracle that is? And he said what I would have said, I would have said the resurrection. He said, no, we can do that. And in fact, if you read the Vedic literatures, the Hindu literature, you and I might call pieces of what they write mythology, but they'll call it their historiography, and they have resurrection story in their literature, just like we have resurrection story in our literature. 
He said, no, we can bring people back from the dead. He said, what we cannot do in Hinduism, because we're divided into 5,000 different strata, castes, he said, what we can't do is what you guys talk about, what Paul talks about, your Jesus follower in Galatians 3. He says, the church is a place where there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but everybody is one in Christ. He said, we don't have a clue as to how to do that. And then he said these words. Don't miss this. He said, if we ever saw that kind of love, that kind of unity, we would know as Hindus, and we have a 1,000, 5,000, a million different gods. He said, we would know that the real God was in the house. Exactly what Jesus is saying here, exactly what he said in John 17. I think we are starting it feels to me like we're, we're not just trying to be slick these days. We realize there's got to be something that's more substantial for the non-believing world to come to Christ, and that more substantial thing is love. What I think we secretly struggle with, and I'm not trying to project my stuff on you this morning, but I know this is where I have struggled in the past especially, and this is where when I travel around, this is where I find most of us struggling. What we still often secretly struggle with is this little phrase, and this will be your next slide, is that little phrase, as I have loved you. I think we're really, really trying to love. But Jesus was very clear. We cannot love unless we know that we're loved. Psychologists would say it this way. You can't give away what you haven't first received. And so if I asked you this morning, if we could just like pause time and I could go around to each of these individuals and I could say, look, bro, you don't know me, but just try to take off the mask for a minute and tell me, do you really know? Dear sister, do you really know the love of God for you? Now, some of us, and when I graduated from seminary, this is exactly what I would have done. I would have quoted a bunch of Bible verses. Well, of course I know the love of God because the Scripture says that God loves me. But if I asked my oldest daughter, Andrea, today, who happens to be 34, three kids, amazing husband, they're taking those grandkids to Denver, Colorado. They're leaving us. Of course, they weren't even that close to us to begin with. They were five hours away, but that was drivable. Now they're going to Denver, which is only flyable. And um, I digress, but you can tell it's on my mind. <laughs> if I said to her today, sweetie, to this day, how do you know that your daddy loves you? And if she said, um, well, when I was seven years old, you were on another one of those business trips, and you wrote me a card on my birthday, and it said, uh, Dear Andrea, blah, 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 and at the end it said, Daddy loves you. Well, I would take that card, and I would put it in my back pocket or my purse or my wallet or whatever, and I'd carry it around with me, and then I would just, when I wanted to know if you loved me, I, took, I would take it out and just read the words. And if I said anything else, no, that's pretty much it. <laughs> the way I experience your love is through the words on that card. That's where I think most of us live as believers in Jesus. I mean, we all know that relational relationships are exposed to experience love. If I said to my wife today, I have you on my calendar, um, I'm disciplined about our relationship, she would want to know, but do you feel anything? Is there anything really between us? And we seem to have that value about any relationship except our relationship with God. Somehow there we say, well, I don't really have to experience anything, but what I have to do is make sure I know what the Bible says, and then that will be enough. My brothers and sisters, that will never be enough. 
tell a little bit about my story. I was raised in a, in a home where we, we, we followed Christ, at least on paper. We were, do you know that you can be a home that believes in Jesus but still be really jacked up? And that was my home, a middle class, incredibly dysfunctional, jacked up home with people who went to church. Every, in fact, we went to church like six times a week. And um, I became the youth group kid. I would have been going on this trip that you guys just talked about to this festival for sure because that's just what I did. In fact, I would have been the president of the class going on that trip. Went to a Christian university, played football there, went out, shared my faith with everyone, went to Dallas Theological Seminary in the process. Took five and a half years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, three years of Latin, all so that I could get the Bible in all of the original languages somehow into my head, maybe that it would filter down into my, into my body. But there were signs all along the way that though I was preaching the love of God, I became a pastor and started to preach the love of God. I didn't know anything about the love of God. I can remember when we first got married, we were like the Barbie and Ken at our Christian university and, you know, just that couple that just was going to be the couple. And six months into our marriage, I lost my cool, um, had an incredible anger problem. I didn't even really know that I had because when you're playing football, everybody wants you to be angry. But when you stop playing ball, you don't, you, you don't know what to do with all that stuff that you subliminated for a decade and a half. And so I, I'm ashamed to say this to you this morning. Um, the first and only time I ever put my hands on my wife in an inappropriate way, but that was the day. And I realized there is something deeply empty inside of me. There's something deeply wounded. Thank God I had the wisdom or the grace to get some help that very next day. I was in a counselor's office on Monday morning after that experience and um, never touched my wife inappropriately again, but just deep wounds that I didn't even know I had. And then when we had kids some years later, I, I remember sitting with my children watching Mr. Rogers. Y'all ever watch Mr. Rogers? By the way, there's a movie coming out starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. Um, see you at the theater. I, I want to see that movie for sure. And I would listen to him singing this song. You guys know the song. Uh, some version of this. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now. The way deep down inside you. Not the things that hide you. Not your clothes and your awards and your diplomas. They're just beside you. It's you I like. Every part of you. And I would sit there with my three little girls. We would sit there in a lazy boy, which we eventually had to throw away, not because it was worn out, but because there were so many particles of whatever down in that that, <laughs> that our children had eaten or I'd eat. You know what I'm saying? It was just flat gross. And so we had to throw that, that chair away, hated to throw that chair away because it would sit there with me, literally draped all over me. And I would hear that, I would hear this guy that I'd never met say those words on the television screen and I would weep. But I had no idea why I was crying. My little girls, you know, children are, they're like, if their parents, they're like, Daddy, are you crying? I see some tears. And I would say to them, sweetie, I don't know why I'm crying, and I didn't, but then I found out later on it's because I wanted somebody to say words like that to me. Here I was, a grown man, all-American football player, graduated with honors from every place I'd ever been, a successful pastor, and incredibly empty inside. 
because I did not know the love of Christ in my heart. And then it culminated in 1990 at the age of 36 when one night after another performance, because if you don't know that love, we tend to perform for that love. And I uh, was coming home from yet another performance and uh, almost took my life on the east side of Detroit. Allard in 94, every time I drive by it to this day, I think of that moment where God literally saved my life because it just came on me. I don't want to live with this emptiness anymore. Not only could I not love well, because you can't give away what you're not receiving. I couldn't do John 13. People would get in my business, and I was ready to say, you want to step outside? There wasn't like this deep love that caused our Savior to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, which he said is the love that will win the world. I didn't have that. I had a bunch of words. And that night, I just thought, I can't live this way anymore, and almost took my life. Here's the point. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 3 when he prays this prayer at the pinnacle of his theology of Ephesians. He says, I'm praying for all of us and all of history, all the believers that will ever live, that we might, get this, be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. He didn't even say the word of God. He said the love of Christ, that, that, that love that is high and wide and deep and long. And the Greek in that text is just, it's frantic Greek because he's so excited because it's that love that changed his life. He said that we might be rooted and grounded in that love because to know that love, he says, is to be, get this, filled with all the fullness of God. Now, the opposite of fullness is, this is a very difficult theological question, the opposite of fullness is, thank you, you're a Bible scholar, um, an emptiness, that vacuum longs to be filled, and so you we spend our lives doing instead of loving because love comes out of a fullness that says it's not about me it's about what you need but emptiness says I'm looking even unconsciously for something from you because I'm empty can you give me something that will put some salve on the wound and on the hurt in my heart and so we do the typical sex drugs and rock and roll will that fill us hopping from bed to bed substance to substance in our neighborhood where I pastored for the last 16 years, it was all about that. But it can even be about work. It can be about family. If I, if I see one more parent that I can tell is not just loving their child, they're trying to fill up the emptiness inside them by the way they are with that child. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It can even be trying to fill up with church what only the personal love of Jesus, as I have loved you, is intended um, to fill up. Satan's big lie this morning, my brothers and sisters, you, you might say, what is the big lie? It's this, that he doesn't really love you, and he doesn't really love me. Because if he gets that across to us, then we will live at least half-baked in our ability to love the world which he said is the way that the world is going to come to Christ. Anthony DeMello, a Jesuit priest, uh, one of my favorite authors, says it like this. See if this connects with you. Your life begins not when you know that you love God. Your life begins when you begin to know that he loves you. So as we turn the corner on this talk, 
whatever you want to call this thing, this sharing moment or sermon, whatever. Some of you might be saying, excuse me, all right. Some of this connects. Some of you might have even punched, elbowed the person next to you because you're thinking, hope you're listening, you, that, you that's sitting next to me. Um, but let me, just, let me just suggest a couple of symptoms of this struggle to know the love of Christ. And by the way, these symptoms, which we don't have time to spend a great deal of time in each of them, these did not come out of a book. These came out of my own life. So let me just run through these quickly. First of all, how about this one? Try this one on for size. That this morning you struggle with knowing who you are, identity, or secretly you hate who you are. Boy, it's difficult to admit, isn't it? Um, in church culture especially, that we hate ourselves. But I was an incredibly successful church person, believer in Jesus that hated myself, even in the midst of all of my supposed success. Can you imagine coming in from the parking lot this morning and one of your friends says, you know, how you doing, John? Good, good, hate myself, but otherwise I'm fine. It's been a good week. Where does someone even say those words, and yet so many of us, I know because when I preach this literally around the country, people will line up to say, you just told my story this morning. I never knew who I could honestly say to without being condemned or marginalized that deep inside I carry a lot of self-contempt. What if I told you you didn't have to live that way anymore? How about this one? Um, tormented by the voices from our childhood. Because that's what we're supposed to first, Deuteronomy 6 says, learn about the love of the Father from parents who have experienced the love of the Father. And so they just pass it on. But what if mom and dad don't know? Then mom and dad give us what they can give us. So a few years ago, I got in touch with a book. I don't even know how I got this book. But it's called Love Letters, Responding to Children in Pain. And it's, uh, there were some social workers, some Christian social workers that got together, and they started to reach out to children that uh, had no one to talk to, who were wounded in their childhood. And how were they going to know the love? Somebody stepped in and helped them know that love experientially. So just, I can't, I don't have time to read much of this, but just listen to a couple of these from these children. Dear heart to heart, I'm so sad my dad is an alcoholic. I love him so much. I get mad when he breaks promises, and maybe if I would be really good, he would stop drinking. Please help me. Dear heart to heart, my name is Darren. I'm in middle school. This is the worst year of my life. I hate school, and my parents think I don't try, but I do. I started drinking, and it's the only time I feel okay. Dear heart to heart, why did God make a dumb person? P.S. I am the dumb person. Dear heart to heart, I'm in the ninth grade and I'm thinking about killing myself, but I don't know how to do it. Kids at school keep putting me down. I honestly hate myself. How do I find out how to kill myself? Please help me. This is what I found over the years in reading these. These are not like some group of, these are us. Some of us are living with these voices inside of us even today that keep us from being able to hear the Father saying, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. 
What if I told you those voices could be healed by the powerful, experiential love of Christ and you could walk free? How about this one? Constantly looking for approval. Now, everybody likes a good encouragement. If I walked out of here after this weekend and nobody said one thing about thanks for coming, sort of enjoyed your talk, whatever, you know? I mean, everybody needs a word of encouragement, but I'm talking about mainlining. You know what I'm saying? When we, ju- we need somebody outside of us to tell us we're okay because we don't know how to hear the voice of God telling us we're okay inside our empty, wounded hearts. How about this when we find ourselves being critical of other people? And some of you say, yes, I'm critical, but I have many Bible verses to support my criticism. Can we, can we just lose the Bible verse theme for a moment as a, like a Bible-pounding, Bible-thumping uh, um, strategy and just get honest that most of the time when we find ourselves being critical of others, what comes out of us is just a critical spirit. We're always able to see what others should be that they apparently are not being, that almost always deep down inside it starts with an internal critical voice. On the days, even to this day, when I'm just looking at my wife, my best friend of the last 40 years, the love of my life, when I'm looking at her with, when criticism starts coming out of me, I realize it's never about what she's doing. It's always about the enemy that's invaded that space in my heart where the love of Christ longs to dwell. And he's beat me up, so I'm looking for the first person in line to get beat up by me. If we could unpack our minds this morning and realize how many of us have these deep, false paradigms inside of us, where our narrative is, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, everybody's important except me, I will never amount to anything, God is always angry with me, I am a normal sinner, I mean, everyone else is a normal sinner, we all know those verses, but I'm a sinner that stands on the other side of the bridge. Nobody's sin is like mine. And in fact, my sin is so bad it can never be forgiven. I am fundamentally unlovable. You know what I'm saying. Those narratives that are self-critical, that come out of our journey, that keep us locked down in the criticism of others. We can't love unless we know that we're loved. How about this one? You find yourself having difficulty in relationships and... Uh, I'm not saying sometimes you're in a relationship with someone who has wounded themselves and they just can't sustain the relationship. I get that. But every once in a while, I've, I've found it to be true that, that I'm trying to put too much on someone. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting a human being to fill up something inside me in a relationship that only the love of Christ can fill up. For the first 10 years of my marriage, I just hammered Carla emotionally for something that only Christ said he could give to me. I remember she, literally, after about 10 years in our marriage, she literally looked at me one time and said, what do you want from me? And I didn't really know. But now I know. I was trying, the relationship, I almost ruined the relationship by trying to get her to fill up that place inside that Paul says, only the love of Christ can fill. How about those of us who are never at peace, constantly driven? We're on the move. And boy, don't people love us when we're on the move, especially if we're on the move for them. I mean, we love these folk in the church. I'm 
sure Justin and I have talked about this, or we will talk about it sometime, that some people, sometimes people come in to work in the body of Christ because they're empty. What we want first is for them to be able to sit down and receive the love of Christ so that they're not doing, doing, doing to try to get the doing to fill up that emptiness. Some of us are working 80 hours a week, and we may say it's the man, and maybe it is the man, but maybe it's something deep down inside that said, if I ever slow down, I will have to deal with the voices. If I'm not active, the activity keeps the voices at bay. When I slow down, those voices, they begin to shout that I'm not worthwhile, that I don't matter. So I'll just keep active so I never have to deal with those voices. We can literally be driven for 80 years and then die and never know and really not very often give away the precious love of Christ, which is the most amazing healing commodity in the universe. One last one, any addictive tendency. I've never, I've, been, I've worked with addicts. I've had my own rage addiction. My addiction was rage. That's how I calmed myself. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But that's what I learned in my home is that if you have some anxiety, you just get pissed off. I don't know if you can say pissed off here, but I just said it. So get ready. Did I say it twice? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I did. Right. Good, good call. Um, yeah, where was I? Well, you get the point. Uh, addictions, any addictions, relational addictions, even, again, even the good stuff, getting addicted to our children. Check out, do I love my kids out of a fullness or am I looking for my child? When I'm really upset at my child, could it be it's because they're not giving me something that I'm looking for inside? That's called being addicted even to our kids. Every addiction is about us trying to get something from that addictive substance, what only Christ says he can give us. So you might say today, well, I've got a few of those. But I'm pretty functional. I mean, I got to church today. I worked in the nursery last week, whatever. Um, I work at a good job. I, functional, okay. You all do look pretty functional. But Jesus did not die, my brothers and sisters, to make us functional. He died to heal us and set us free so that we could give that healing and that freedom and his love to a broken-hearted world. So finally, uh, I mean, if we were on a retreat, I would have some kind of experiential exercise for you to go back to your room and, and do so that you could get in touch on a deeper level with this, this teaching to see if you're buying it, see if it can go in a place of your heart. Um, but we're not on retreat. You have to go home today, and you're going to go to work tomorrow. So I think I'd be not a good man, let alone a, a good teacher, if I didn't give you just a few thoughts about healing, um, and then we'll be done. Um, and, and let me just say this. I'm going I'm to give you three brief thoughts, and it's going to feel like a list, and I hate that. I hate lists. I hate spiritual lists. Anybody here hate spiritual lists? I'm the only one in here that hates spiritual lists. Are you kidding me? When I go to the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, whatever, and there's a book there, you know, five things you got to do or I don't buy it. So I don't want you to think that this is a list that I'm giving you. Um, it, this is about relationship. So let me, let me give you my first relational non-list item. Here it is. 
the healing journey. What if today all you did is get, begin to get honest about your need to heal? I'm thinking of this powerful verse in Ephesians 4, very soon after Paul's words about the love of Christ filling us with all the fullness of God. In fact, it's the very first specific command Paul gives to believers on how to interact with one another. First, it's number one. It wasn't number five. It was number one. He says, stop lying and let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are literally members of one another. We're connected to one another. Because you know this. If you don't have honesty, you can't have relationship. So what if this non-step step is about starting with your relationship with yourself? What if you just took a moment today Hopefully, this is a safe place. I, I know this. Justin is one of the safest young men I know. And, and, I mean, I feel like I could tell him anything. I don't know him even that well, but I feel like already. You know, safety gets kind of communicated in ways that are beyond length of relationship. I just feel like the brother is a safe place. So if, if this place is anything like him, you're in a safe place to take a risk. What if today you began to believe... I can take this one, I can move in this direction toward the heart of God by first saying, I have some emptiness inside that I've been living with for so long, and I just thought this is the way it was. Everybody else lifts their hands when, you know, we sing the songs about the love of God, and I lift my hands because everybody else lifts their hands, but deep inside I'm saying, I don't feel these words. I never have felt these words. What if you just today got honest and said, I can start there. I can just say I need some healing. The truth will indeed set us free. Number two of uh, my non-list list items. This is about our relationship with our Abba, our Father. What if we, if we had courage, took a step toward God and asked him to begin to heal what we've just admitted that we need healing in? Look at this verse. This is... This is an astounding verse if it's, if it's true. And we're here today because we, we believe the book is true. For you, he's talking to us, didn't receive, when you met Christ, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, the law, lists. But here's what you received, the Holy Spirit of adoption. You were in an orphanage and God came and picked you out. He chose you by whom now we cry out. And you know what the Greek word for cry out means? Cry out. It's hard. I took five and a half years of Greek, Justin, just to know that most of the time the English translation is really good. But anyway, we cry out. Like my little girl, Andrea, when I would come home, she'd say, Daddy's home. This is like the cry of excitement of a child who sees God and says, Abba. And you know, Abba is the Aramaic word. Yoyakim Yermi has taught us 40 years ago in really a, 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 a deeply researched project that some have since debunked, but I'm buying his research, that Abba was the Aramaic term that a little a Hebrew child would use when he first addressed his father, when he first had language to address his father. Now get this. This means it wasn't like, you know, a one-year-old Hebrew child doesn't look at his dad and for the first moment he's speaking to him saying, Father, Father, I have what language now? For No, he doesn't even say, Dad, he doesn't even say, Daddy, he says, Dada. That's Abba. Paul says, I'm inviting you. This, this is the term that Jesus used the night he was crucified, when he was in his most difficult moment in Mark 14. He said, Abba, Father. 
if you could let this cup pass. Nevertheless, Abba, your will, not mine, be done. He said, you and I get to address God like that. But my brothers and sisters, I, because I'm you, I know how most of the time we address him. He's like our, uh, for many of us, he's like our, uh, he's our coach. Maybe a good coach, but every time we see him, he's like, did you cut, a, did you cut ten, a tenth of a second off your spiritual 40 time last week? Did you get it done? Did you work harder? Did you eat healthier? Were you in the word? Did you have your devotions? Did you cry? Did you make it to church? In other words, a good coach, but he's like our coach. We look at him, it's like, oh gosh, I need to work harder. He's not your coach. He's your dada. Some of us look at him like he's our professor. He's always got more information. We look up at him and he goes, I've got more reading for you. Have you read the minor prophets? You need to get into them. They're deep. And uh, as you mature, you're going to want to start with Amos. Yeah, I mean, or 12 Christian books that he, he's not our professor. He's our dada. Maybe our cop. Maybe he's our cop. Somebody has to keep us out of trouble. Somebody has to put us in spiritual jail, spiritual timeout. Maybe, but that's not him. He's our creator. He's our king. But Paul says he invites us to primarily look at him as our dada. When my little girls were young, they would hurt themselves, whatever. I'm thinking of my, my middle daughter, Leanne, who is today a therapist, and she married a therapist. And by the way, if you have kids who are therapists, you're going to need a therapist. <laughs> And if Leanne, if Leanne sees, here's this recording, if whatever, she knows. I say that with all due respect. But, but if they go to school for therapy, when they look at you, they never look at you the same again. I will promise you that. <laughs> but this child, in the beginning stages of her sensitivity, was very afraid of ants. We thought there was maybe something wrong, but it's just she was sensitive. Now she's making money of being sensitive. So um, <laughs> she would see those ants scream run to me, jump up in my arms, lay her head on my chest, and just sob. And then my chest would be wet with her tears. She would get up, and you know, she was done. Pushed away, started to play. Where did she leave her pain and her sorrow? On the chest of her Abba. What if this second non-step step was simply you taking the honesty of I felt those words from that heart-to-heart -heart book this morning. I have some of those symptoms. I'm so driven. I have relational struggles. Why can't I get along with... I want to know that he loves me. What if you took that pain, whatever surfaces today, and took a risk that maybe he's not your coach or your instructor. Maybe he loves you with all of his heart. He's your Abba. What if you began even today to begin pouring your heart out to him, asking him to heal the brokenness inside. It's exactly the step I took after I almost committed suicide in 1990 at the age of 36. I got on my knees and I said, God, if you don't help me, I'm back out on that freeway. And he met me in that pain because he's my father. Finally, lastly, 
the last non-step step about relationships with others. What if I told you that you also can begin to be healed right here in this place? And I, I've looked at the signage around um, your community, and love can heal what hurt. Love never fails. Outside, I saw a couple of times in chalk, healing, healing. So my sense is this is a healing community already, but I'm wondering if all of us really believe it's healing for us. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8. Now, Peter, remember, one of Jesus' followers who sat with him in John 13, the original text of the morning, and heard him say, love one another as I've loved you and the world will know, that's this Peter. Look what he says in a letter to the churches in Asia Minor. He says, above all things. You know what the Greek for above all things means? You should know. Above all things, thank you. It means the thing that's above every other thing. Have fervent love for one another. For that love will cover, I don't want to take time to do the exegesis of this term, but you can very easily translate heal. Cover on steroids. Cover to the point that you mitigate the effect of a multitude of sins. What if I said that a layer of your healing today from some of what you're beginning to take to your Abba is right here in this healing community. What if I suggested that the main reason we gather, not just on Sundays, but to your point, beyond Sundays, is to turn toward one another, tell our truth about the way the enemy has tried to take us out and receive the love. They may not be Profound words. It's not about profound words. You may not be a therapist. Most of us aren't. It's just being present to another brother or sister with the love that Jesus is pouring into you. In that moment, healing of our brokenness begins to occur. We begin to be set free so that we can love the world to Christ. Remember when Jesus in Matthew 18 said, when two or three are gathered together, I'm there do you ever wonder what he meant? What's he doing? Is he just kind of like gawking? Hi, I see you. It's nice. Can I have a cup of coffee? I mean, what, what if what he's doing when he's there with you is doing what he said he came to do? And Luke 4, I've come to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. What I know this morning, what I know this morning, if I know anything, otherwise I'm out if, I, if this isn't true, I'm done. I'm gone. I've got nothing. I've got words. But if this is true, we've got everything we need. Jesus is not like here, like he's out there in heaven and kind of looking on us, kind of like here because he's God. He is literally here because he said when we gather in his name, he would be there. When we come together, you don't primarily come to hear a guy like me or Justin or another teacher. You come to be with one another so that that love of Christ can begin to do its healing work. And by the way, do you know that isn't just biblical truth? That is neurobiological reality. To show you what kind of nerd I am, somebody bought me a book on neurobiological research a few years ago, and I tried to read it. I got about 150 pages in, and I said, I'm sorry. I can't do this anymore, but I learned a lot. And you know what I learned in that 150 pages is that when we don't get the love that we need, 
literally, biologically, places in our limbic brain, you can call it the right brain, get wounded. They literally can hook up electrodes and see the wounded areas. A child can be wounded as early as the third trimester in the womb if they don't believe on the outside of the womb that they're wanted or loved. That's neurobiological reality. But you know what the neurobiologists also say? That wounding in the limbic brain that has occurred for so many of us this morning over the course of our lives, that wounding can be healed. The neurobiologists say that the wounding of unlove can be healed by love. What do you know? Peter said it first 2,000 years ago. So what I'd like to do to close us, um, here's what I wish I could do. I wish I could pause time, as I mentioned earlier, and go around to each of you and hear a piece of your story. I wish that God would give me the privilege of sitting with each of you and just saying, if you trust me even a little bit, I mean, I told you all about my junk, tell me about yours. And watch Jesus begin to heal us both at a deeper level by just being together. That's what I wish I could do. But uh, we have another service in a moment, so I can't. What I am going to do, what I'd like to do, and I'd like to do it with you if you'll let me. Um, you sat in this chair. It's not my fault that you sat in this chair, my brother. <laughs> and uh, you have a kind face. And um, what is your name, by the way? Jason. Jason. I'm Kevin. Would you mind playing the role of my son just for a second this morning? It'll only take a moment. Relatively painless, I think. In the Jewish community, instituted um, by folk who believed that God loved them, Deuteronomy 6, wish I had time to teach that passage this morning about teaching our children to know the love of God. Um, at the beginning of Sabbath, the Hebrew people instituted this practice that goes on to this day. A father will bring his sons and daughters to him on Friday evening, and he will pray a specific um, loving blessing out of his own heart over his son or his daughter or however many kids he has. It was a way that they believed they could specifically, on a weekly basis, communicate the healing love of their Abba. Now, as you're watching me bless uh, my new son, Jason. How old are you, Jason? 25. This will work because I'm 42, and that would make me. <laughs> I'm hurt that you're laughing, but okay, that's being authentic. Um, I want you to ask yourself this question. First of all, what if you had ever received this kind of blessing from anyone ever, let alone a mom or a dad, let alone every Friday night of your life? How could that have changed your ability on the inside to receive the love of God? Secondly, contemplate this. What if God would allow you to take away from here today an image of this is the way your heavenly Father is talking to you and me every moment of every day of our lives? He just wants to heal us enough to be able to receive it. So, it's Sabbath evening, and I've called my son Jason to me, and I'm going to give him a blessing.
God bless you, my son. I remember so well, 25 years ago, when you were born, it was an unbelievable moment for your dad. I loved you so much right at that moment. And this is the amazing thing. You hadn't done a thing in life yet. Well, you, you made it down the birth canal, but um, <laughs> my sense is you didn't have a whole lot of choice. <laughs> this is what I want you to hear, Jason. You had not performed at all, and I just loved you. What I want you to know today, son, is that I love you like that 25 years later, just like I did then. It's never about performance. I know that's hard to believe sometimes, son. I'm sure I have my bad moments when it looks like I'm only going to love you if you come through. But when you were playing in the band and you squeaked, I didn't love you less than when you did your solo and did it in a stellar way. When you were playing baseball, I didn't love you less when you made the error that cost the game any more than I loved you more when you hit the game-winning hit. I, I just love you, son. I love you with all of my heart. And I know that out there, it's often love if or love because. It's not always very kind. But I want you to know that as you go through life, whether you become the next president of the United States or whether, God forbid, you end up in some real trouble, end up in prison or anywhere in between. You need to know that I'm watching you. I am with you. And if you ever need me, all you need to do is look over your shoulder. And I promise you, I will be there because I'm your father. And you're my son. And I love you. So may the Lord bless you, Jason. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you, my son, and give you of God's deep and sweet and everlasting peace. Amen.